Punt's private eye. I'm not here right now. Please leave a message. Punt, it's Tracy. I need you to get yourself to Paris and investigate a suspicious death. The authorities said it was accidental, but others aren't so sure. Victim's name, Emile Zola. Watch your step over there, Punt. Our French friends might not care for you meddling in their affairs. So I was off to La Belle France. Cue accordion music. Hang on. Hello, hello? That's not quite what I had in mind. I was thinking less René, more Maigret. That's more like it. Because this wasn't just any old case. I would be scouring the mean boulevards of Paris in search of clues to the death of one of France's most celebrated writers, Emile Zola. Ladies and on board the train, I did a quick refresher course on this grand fromage of French literature. Novelist, playwright and journalist, born 1840, childhood friend of Cézanne, author of Jacques, married to Alexandrine, Émile Zola published dozens of novels, including a 20-book epic account of the Second French Republic. But I wasn't going to get through that on one journey. Not unless there was a sudden French railway strike. But unusually, there wasn't. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Paris. We will soon be running at Paris station on On arrival, I headed out onto the streets, rapidement, hoping to wow the locals with my impressive command of the language. So, ici Paris. My old French teacher, Mr Ridley, would be proud. First destination, La Maison Zola. I headed for the metro where you do seem to get a better class of busker. Nothing like a bit of swing jazz tuba to get me in the mood for investigating a mysterious death. Emerging from the metro, I found myself in a rather chic arrondissement round the corner from the Moulin Rouge, where I'd arranged a rendezvous with Marie Segura, who runs Le Carla's walking tours. She'd promised to show me where Emile Zola bid this world adieu. So this is Rue de Bruxelles, and uh, we're about to go to the 21 bis, which is the house where Emile Zola died. So we're just there on the corner. One of two Paris houses bought with the fruits of Zola's success. The other was for his mistress, by whom he had two children. Ooh la la. Can you, can you give me some idea how big it is? Is it all of this building? So it's the old building here uh, that you see on two floors plus the ground floor here and the little courtyard. So 28th of September 1902, what do we know about that night? So we know the couple Zola was coming back from the house in the countryside. So they came here in Paris, it was wet, it was cold, they wanted a little fire. So they knew they had a little problem in the day before. The servant told them that something was a bit wrong with the chimney, but someone came and fixed it. But what happened is when they light the coal fire, they get into bed. Zola is locking the door like he's always doing it. And during the night, they don't feel very well. Alexandrine is feeling very sick. So she's trying to call the servants. But Emil said, no, no, we'll be fine. You know, just rest and that's going to be 
you know, okay in the morning. But then during the night, we think that Zola wake up and in a very last action, he tried to open the window because we found him just at the side of the window. And Alexandrine was still lying in the bed. What happened is at nine o'clock in the morning, with no response from their master, the servant starts to bang on the door. And then together, they just broke the door, enter in, see Alexandrine lying on the bed and she was unconscious mm -hmm. and Zola on the floor and also the dog. So they took the two bodies, tried to reanimate them. Alexandrine was fine, but Zola, they never made it. So they declared the death at 10 o'clock in the morning. Zola was dead at the age of 62 by carbon monoxide poisoning from a blocked chimney. His wife, Alexandrine, survived. The very first reaction was like, oh my God, what a terrible accident. But then you had Jan, the mistress, that was thinking that it was not an accident at all, it was a murder, but no proof. The authorities tested the chimney, even using some guinea pigs as, um, guinea pigs, but drew a blank. The suspicions of Zola's mistress appeared unfounded, and the verdict ruled out foul play. Marie seemed to agree that this was nothing more than a chimney malfunction. It's normal because during all summer time, they were not using the chimney. Yeah. It was September, you see, so they were on summer vacation, they came back. It was the first day they were using the chimney since a long time, so someone came and cleaned it, yeah. but uh, it was not enough. So, no twist in this great wordsmith's tale. When there is a big writer, uh, very romantic, we think he has to have a death that is dramatic. But in reality, I think it's just an accident. To myself, I think it's just an accident. But people are trying to dramatize, just to make a story. Marie had a point. A blocked chimney does seem like an unlikely way to get rid of someone. But maybe there's no smoke without fire. Why did Zola's mistress think he might have been murdered? Was he a man with enemies? I needed to learn more about Zola's life and times in fin de siècle Paris. I was heading to the Pantheon, armed with my trusty old-school navigation device. Let's have a look at the map again. The map, however, couldn't tell me which way I was facing, leaving me with two very confident choices. It's either up there and right, or it's down there and left. Hang on. Thanks to some decent signage and after a few wrong turns, there it was. Pantheon is a huge building. It looks, looks a bit like uh, St Paul's Cathedral, with a big dome, pillars, um, a bit lack of windows. And it's Zola's final resting place. I'd arranged a briefing with Professor Andrew Hussey, cultural historian and author of Paris, The Secret History. It's really based on the Pantheon in Rome, and the idea is you've got all of the great men of the nation, and they are all men, must put that out, who are in the Pantheon, and they incarnate French identity, French cultural identities, all the greats, really, Victor Hugo, Pascal, and, of course, you know, Emile um, Zola. What do we know about his death? Well, what we do know about Zola's death is that it was very fishy, but... It never became a conspiracy theory until 1953. And this is when the journal Liberation, which is a journal which has come from the resistance, published a piece by Jean Borel, he was called, who said he'd come across a deathbed confession from a chimney sweep, a killer chimney sweep, who said that he'd been put up to do the job. Straight away, political conspiracy theory caught fire. The Zola had been bumped off by one of the myriad enemies who visibly wanted him dead. A killer chimney sweep. 
Could it be that the hunch of Zola's mistress had been correct and that he was kippered to death? So it's clearly an unusual way to choose to murder somebody, but I, do you buy the theory it could have been deliberate? Well, if I was a 1902-style detective in Paris, what I would be asking is qui bono, who profits from this? Now, you're never going to be able to make the link between the evil killer chimney sweep and, you know, the bigger forces driving it. It's all a bit sort of 9-11 in terms of conspiracy theories there. However, to answer the question, qui bono, who does it profit? There's so many people out there by the time that Zola gets to 1902. He's accumulated so many enemies from the, from the military, from the Catholic right, both politically and in terms of religion, also in the world of journalism. So... Zola wasn't just a writer, an intellectual. He was emblematic of massive division in French society. And that's why, as a detective in 1902 Paris, I'm thinking somebody had to kill him. Somebody had to bump him off so many enemies. He was like Tony Soprano of Paris. That's a lot of enemies. So why would a writer be surrounded by such dark forces? What Zola did was massive. In 1898, he published a piece called J'accuse, very famous, in which he accused, essentially, the, the, the French government of collusion with the French military in covering up the Dreyfus affair, in which Dreyfus was a Jewish officer in the French army who'd been accused of passing intelligence to the Germans. Now, this was not true, and the French military authorities discovered that it was somebody called Esterhazy, but instead of saying it was Esther Hazy and it was all, you know, wrong and all of that kind of stuff. They covered it up. There was a dodgy dossier which was buried by the French government and Zola was the person who said, I'm going to point the finger, j'accuse. Aha. But murder by blocked chimney still seemed a rather strange assassination method. Zola's wife, after all, was in the same room as her husband but made a full recovery. It was time to take stock. So I've come to a little cafe where... Uh... Over a café au lait and a chausson pomme, which sounds much posher than a milky coffee and an apple turnover, I'm going to read up on the Dreyfus case, which I know shamefully little about. This notorious scandal started with a torn-up letter discovered by a French cleaning lady in the German embassy. The letter was evidence of a traitor in the ranks, and the finger of suspicion pointed at French army officer Alfred Dreyfus, who was Jewish. He was tried, found guilty of spying and imprisoned. But he was innocent and the French authorities knew it. It would take a big and brave figure to stand up to this miscarriage of justice. Enter Emile Zola. He said it is gripping, it is exciting, it is horrible and how it is great at the same time. My next expert witness, Professor Ruth Harris of Oxford University. And I think this remark is essential to understanding how, as a novelist, he saw the affair as an epic struggle and one in which he was also going to play an epic role. The way that he described the affair and the fact that it was so radical and in many ways so revolutionary has often been seen as why the camps divided so strongly one side versus the other, because the way Zola writes about it is as a battle between good and evil. Ruth confirmed that wading into this battle between good and evil made Zola a high-profile Dreyfus supporter, or Dreyfusard, and the establishment's bête noire. He was pilloried, he was vilified, he is condemned, 
and then he flees. He fled, in fact, to London, where he took up a new hobby: taking photographs of Croydon, as if he hadn't been punished enough. But does Ruth believe that he was murdered by personal persons or killer chimney sweeps? Unknown. I am really agnostic on this because there is no definitive evidence, and that all we have is second-hand testimony, much of it uncorroborated. It is so hard to judge what actually happened, and the police inquiry was done very poorly. And because of that, the actual evidence of the moment is so hard to find. And I think it's just so difficult in the affair because of its conspiratorial logic. Each side had conspiracy theories about what the others were doing. So is Zola's murder just another, albeit rather upmarket, conspiracy theory? There are some details of Madame Zola's account that trouble Ruth. I find it perplexing that they wake in the night with migraines and stomach ache. We know because she survives the attack, and. They do not wake up the domestics. I mean, it's the it's the it's this we do know. So this is the other side of the story that is I find perplexing. Why is it that they didn't raise the alarm? I do not understand that. That's my query. And I also had a query about dates. Zola died three years after Dreyfus had been pardoned. Why would someone wait so long to exact revenge? Dan Rebellato adapted Zola's works for radio, and I invited him to take the stand. This is an affair that wasn't resolved satisfactorily or quickly. So by the time he dies, actually the affair is still rumbling on, and people will still remember that Emile Zola was one of the figures. Who most embodied the Dreyfusards, and so if you were an anti-Dreyfusard, I think he would be considered a hate figure. Yes, because Dreyfus was pardoned, wasn't he, in eighteen ninety-nine? The pardon of Dreyfus in eighteen ninety-nine was a slightly inept attempt by the state to reconcile the two sides, because actually he was pardoned, but the idea is he was pardoned for spying. But of course, the Dreyfusards thought, well, we know he didn't spy. So why is he being pardoned for something he didn't do? And of course, the anti-Dreyfusards are saying, why are we pardoning somebody who has spied for the Germans against France? So it really didn't resolve very much. It was only in 1906 that they had a new trial of Dreyfus, and eventually he was completely exonerated of everything he was accused of. So. Given all this, given the extraordinary strength of, of of what happened after Jacques, do you think it's a tenable theory that he he was murdered? I think so. I think so. I don't think it's possible, in a way, to overstate how divisive and、uh, how traumatic the Dreyfus affair was for. Ordinary French people. Yes, I mean I have to to say though that blocking blocking someone's chimney as a way of of getting rid of them seems slightly、uh, and it seems sort of like a rather novelistic way of doing it. Everybody had these open fires. Everybody would be aware of the the risks in a way that we're not now. So we probably think it is a rather strange way of of trying to kill someone. But I imagine people died quite regularly because they're 
chimneys were blocked and carbon monoxide got into the blood. So uh, rather in the same way that people might look back on our era and, and kind of say that feeding someone polonium-laced sushi seems like a rather novelistic way of killing someone, but it seems to happen. Hmm. So as darkness crept over the City of Light, I'd made enough inquiries for one day. I had plenty of food for thought, and indeed plenty of thoughts of food. Over confit of duck and dauphinoise potatoes, I'm now mulling over the case. There is much to ponder here, and uh, I think a, another glass of Cote Duraine might help, officially. I'm not sure if it helped or not, but a few glasses of Vin Rouge definitely helps in coming up with the odd bad joke. That was a long day. Uh, I'm off to bed now. Um, first of all, I'm going to check the chimney's not blocked, and, um, and then I'm going to go to bed. So, uh, bonne nuit. <laughs> that one won't make the final cut, I promise. Next morning... Vomiting, chest pain and confusion. No, not more effects of the Cote du Rhone. It's the symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning. Professor of Clinical Pharmacology Athol Johnston had agreed to help me determine the science behind Zola's death. Headache, dizziness, weakness, upset stomach because you, you your brain gets starved of oxygen and you, you just lose your mental capacity because your brain's not working properly. Is it, is it painful? Would you, would you be aware of what was happening to you? I, I don't think so. I think uh, it, it would, obviously you've got a headache, that would be painful, but not really painful. It would just be a headache which you'd shrug off mm. uh, and you wouldn't notice it. You wouldn't feel like you're suffocating. Mm. It would be such a gradual process. Well, that answers Ruth Harris's query about why the Zolas didn't alert their servants. So, specifically with this case, if you had, if you had a look at it, yes, um, is there anything about it that you find particularly intriguing, or does it seem sort of fairly straightforward to you? It seems fairly straightforward to me. I think if if you were to come across that. Uh, I'm not a policeman, but uh, if if you came across that, I think, uh, and the circumstances, you just put it down to natural causes due to uh, incomplete ventilation of, of the room and a faulty fire. But how would a domestic fireplace generate a deadly gas? Normally an open fire wouldn't generate any carbon monoxide because it's, it's well ventilated, there's a good draft up the chimney, uh, a good throughput of air through the coals, and that would get complete combustion of the uh, of the coals and they would go just to that nice white ash that you get uh, from a coal fire. But if there's incomplete combustion, that's to say some sort of re restricted airflow, uh, for example, if the chimney's not drawing very well, slightly blocked or, or completely blocked, then the coal is just going to burn uh, very poorly, it's going to burn incompletely and you're going to get carbon monoxide produced. One of the interesting things here is that one of the two people in the room died and the other one didn't. What reasons could there be to account for that? Well, there's several reasons to account for the fact that they both didn't die. I mean, if you just think about any room you sit in, some bits of room are drafty and some bits aren't, so there's a microclimate within the room. So his wife might have been just closer to the window and there was a, uh, more of a draft, so it wasn't getting as much carbon monoxide. Or it could be just she was healthier. 
if he had heart disease or breathing problems generally, then might be that, that he was more susceptible to dying from reduced oxygen in his blood. So if, if you were able to access and block somebody's chimney, that, that is a very dangerous it's thing to do. Dangerous, but very hit and miss as to whether it would kill someone or not. Because you would then have to rely on the fact that the room was poorly ventilated, the fire was poorly ventilated, and that they had enough uh, coal or, or um, charcoal on the fire to actually generate enough carbon monoxide to kill you. Yes. So it's kind of malicious, but not necessarily fatal. I think malicious is quite. I think as a malicious uh, act uh, would be it would be quite effective because it would make you feel ill, uh, and you. But you'd have to be not worried about potentially killing someone if you did that. But as a malicious act, it would be. It would be. I think straightforward. So you wouldn't you wouldn't have any certainty that your victim was necessarily going to uh, to actually die. No, you would have no certainty that you're going to kill someone by doing that. So an act merely of malice, or an act of murder? That was the question. Time for my final appointment, and by now I was getting pretty confident with the metro map. I need to get to Charentine Ecole, which is on line eight. But that only runs north of the river, so you could get line 10 to Gar Austerlitz and then go two stops up to Bastille and get on line 8 there. My lines on the metro were clear, my lines of inquiry less so. I was on my way to see my last and most important expert witness, who'd promised to share vital information. In the southeast of Paris, I headed up the steps of a pleasant cobbled alleyway to the office of eminent Zola scholar Henri Mitterrand, who revealed that the case had attracted doubts at the highest level. Le commissaire qui avait dirigé l'enquête et qui avait conclu à l'accident, 20 ans plus tard, alors qu'il était retraité, a confié que lui-même Henri told me that the police inspector who had led the investigation into Zola's death confessed years later after retiring that he hadn't believed his own conclusion that it had been an accident. He had suspected something criminal but been unable to prove it. This admission went unnoticed at the time. Interesting, but not conclusive. Then Henri moved on to the deathbed confession of the killer chimney sweep, and he gave me a name, Henri Burenfoss. There were things in his past that all seemed to add fuel to the fire. Quand il avait 20 ans, 25 ans, euh, avait fait partie des, des gardes du corps, des hommes de main, disons, du président de l'association ou de la société antisémite de Paris. When Burenfoss was about 25, he was one of the bodyguards for the president of the French Anti-Semitic Association, who had openly published threats against Jews and those who defended them. Justement, a publié des menaces contre les Juifs, contre les défenseurs des Juifs, etc. He was dangerous. Dangerous. 
So, the suspect was tied to the dark forces. The conspiracy theory had at least one leg to stand on. And there was more. Premier indice qui pouvait euh, autoriser l'idée d'un attentat. On a découvert aussi que cet homme avait fait des réparations en septembre 1902 sur le toit voisin de l'immeuble où habitait Zola. It seems that in September 1902, Buren Foss had repaired the roof next door to Zola's apartment. This meant he had not just motive, but opportunity. Donc, euh, très probablement, si la bouche et la cheminée, c'est dans, dans quelques jours avant, euh, il, il a su que... Henri Zola told me it's most likely that Buren Foss blocked the chimney a few days before the Zolas returned to Paris from their summer house. Il a bouché la cheminée pour leur jouer un mauvais tour. Voilà. And crucially, that he did so to play a nasty trick on them. And so, what picture do we see in the flames of rumour around this case? We have a man with a motive and access to the top of Zola's chimney. But was it just a prank gone wrong? As toxicologist Athol Johnston had advised me, there were too many variables in this case to ever be certain. Henri Mitterrand agreed. Si la fenêtre était restée ouverte dans leur chambre, il ne serait pas mort. If the window had been open, Zola wouldn't have died. Si Zola s'était levé en même temps que sa femme pour aller tout simplement dans la salle de If bain, Zola had got up when his wife did to go to the bathroom and take some air, he also might have survived. La conscience, il ne serait pas mort non plus. C'est très étrange, hein? mais c'est la malchance, c'est le mauvais hasard aussi qui les a, qui les a tués. As Henri put it, it's all very strange. It's bad luck that killed them. Parce qu'on ne peut pas imaginer que ce personnage, Henri Buronfoss, savait exactement... Buronfoss cannot have known exactly what would happen in the night following his actions. Fascinating. As I headed back to the Gare du Nord, I certainly felt I'd come much closer to the truth. But this was far from an open and shut case. I still had many questions about the death of the author of J'accuse. Who did I accuse? Did Buronfoss intend to kill Zola or just to harm him by playing a sick joke? And even if it was a deadly prank gone wrong, did Buronfoss act alone? Or was he following orders? There is one final possibility. Buronfoss's deathbed confession of killing this celebrated writer was itself a work of fiction. <laughs>